Welcome to Queer Conversation. In the studio with me today is Imogen Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. You've been around for a very long time fighting for visibility, for especially for LGBTQI plus yes. performers. Let's talk about your early work in mm. the early 90s mm. in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, and there was nowhere for women to perform in general, unless, of course, you wanted to be in a cabaret or a theatre show where the script was written for you usually by a man or you were dressed by a man or you were playing these heteronormative roles um, and so thankfully we all decided to start creating our own platforms because we could see that drag had that uh, but because so many of our would-be mentors or people that would have been there for us to create these platforms had AIDS or were looking after people dying from AIDS and it was very difficult time for I think I don't know, for lesbians or people in the lesbian community to get that visibility because we're also fighting that idea that women on stage or they shouldn't be on stage or how much a part of our uh, in my you know in my case anyway the use of lipstick uh, high heels things I really I, I, I liked employing on stage as weaponry, the, we had that old guard idea that no, you should not be portraying that on stage, you're playing into the male gaze. So it was dismantling that construct, but also trying to create a, a safe place for ourselves to have visibility, to have support, to have the conversation on our terms of how it was for gay women at that time. And we were all just really wild. What was the first gig that you organized back then? Um, the first gig was I was um, dating to Lisa Salmon who created Ms. Wicked so and I was going to university with her and she was a fascinating person and also, also Jasper Leibart and they were creating Wicked Women and Ms. Wicked and so I was exposed to that whole idea that there should be a place, a subversive place for women to get on stage and express their erotic inner world and their fantasies and it did it was very much BDSM and it was that crew and it was hardcore in that way uh, but that also made it very fun to play with when Talisa started doing things like anonymous guri drag or you know taking that apart as well just no one could tell us how to be and so my first times on stage were with um, Talisa in her troupe called Kinky Galore and she, she, the first time she got me on stage was actually, she, she said, I want you to be on stage. She'd met me at or stalked me at um, university. She went, you look like tank girl. So I had the mohawk and the, you know, wild attire. And I was very angry, young woman. She went, I want you to come on stage with me. I'm doing a show at a little, a friend's little party. And, um, and, and so I, I accepted. She goes, don't worry, I'll get the costume. There's no choreography. We just turn up and dance. And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> and the little party was sleazeball and there were 20,000 people in front of us and um, my costume was a G-string. And so I was like, oh, well, this, uh, I just said, I'm always one of those people who just is up for, up for an adventure. So I went, yeah, sure, let's go. Uh, went from that shy convent girl that I was or that I was fighting against that upbringing to being overnight. Uh, christened on the stage that huge in front of that many people. One of the venues was at Hellfire Club? Yeah, yeah. Hellfire Club came along just a heartbeat afterwards. So Hellfire started yeah, early 1990s, but definitely it was another space, different conversation, different crowd. So very quickly I had to adapt 
because I was dancing in the strip clubs in King's Cross to pay my way through university, taking that experience out of the strip clubs and putting it onto queer stages and alternative stages and also then into the fetish scene. So it was it was a wonderful time in that there were lots of subcultures, but I managed to somehow be appealing to a great many of them, which is what set me up to become a, a daikon in the 90s, was that I was just capable or whatever it was I was doing through being in the drag clubs with the the, the drag queens, to them doing the fetish bars, to them doing striptease, to them doing the dyke scene um, or the lesbian scene. I'm not sure if people still use the word dyke, but that is a subcultural reference. So I hope people understand that when I use that term, it means a particular crew of lesbians who identified under that banner. Um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible time and there was so much to fight and we didn't have the alphabet because the alphabet wasn't important. What was important was getting visibility to our community. Somebody asked me, um, do you still identify as a dyke? And I said, well, yes, I do. And I found that very odd that it's absolutely my identity through to my bones, but I don't find myself on that comfortable putting myself anywhere on the alphabet, but I understand and acknowledge absolutely why it exists. Sexuality is so personal. That's what I find complex about it. It's like, yes, I was very out when I was out and I still am and I still will always fight um, because I've got my own daughter to fight for too. And she's going into that world where it's like you are supposed to know before you've even kissed somebody what your sexuality is. And I find that, I think that's very confusing for them. I know it's supposed to create structure and comfort um, but I guess we'll find our way through, and we always have. And the next wave of um, addressing visibility or acceptance will look different. In the early 90s, you were co-founding Girlesque, one of the most successful women events that have ever been in Sydney. The first thing that needed to happen was to change the laws so that we could open a strip club somewhere out of the red light district and take it away from that male-dominated world that myself, sex and glitter were very much part of and being crushed by it was very we it was hard to be a stripper then in that uh, you know in the, the warfare that was just happening in our urban landscape mm. and so once the laws were changed and that was something that i did um it took a few years for us to cohere and then finally uh sex and glitter came to me and said i want to do a cabaret mr monster and they wanted to do um this thing called girlesque and they asked if i would join them and i said of course and uh, we had no idea if it would be successful no one had ever done anything like it then or before or since i think um and to make it safe we had to make it all women you know, we couldn't have any men in there. We, we didn't know how to really make a safe. We had come from such an unsafe space. We didn't know how to make it safe. So we just said all women, um, performers and in the audience, and let's see what happens. And the first night, we, the first week we did it, there was a picket line out the front, and people girl-cotting the event and... You know, we'd done a few little events, you know, from as wicked through the 90s, but this was, this was really putting ourselves in a, an unsafe space with the community who were opposed to us running a strip club because it was part of that, uh, you know, the male gaze, women being paid, commodifying our sexuality, commodifying our bodies. They, they, all they had to 
to compare it to was what the male strip clubs looked like, or male run for men. Nowhere in the world had anybody seen what it would be like if women were in control of that space. And the next week, all the people in those picket lines, they're in the front row because it was an explosion. Everybody just went, oh my gosh, it can be anything. This thing you are doing is about discarding identity, discarding, you know, these items of beauty, parodying all of those stereotypes, like just taking the mickey out of it. But it was also sexy. And it was, it was the first time I think women had gone, oh, we, we like looking at each other and it's okay to look at each other in these environments because the performer is comfortable, is well catered for, is, it come, is coming from a lot of experience. All of us have been working in those clubs for a long time. And so we knew we could create, we hoped we could create a safe space for ourselves and other performers, but also for the audience. And it was just like dynamite. Everybody needed it. And it was revolutionary. I'll never forget it. And, and still, since I have never seen anything like it anywhere in the world where anyone could get on stage and have a go. And that was the magic. I mean, yes, we always made sure we had professional strippers. We had Elizabeth Burton. Come on, we were not ageist. We were not racist. We were just like, if you want to go on stage, we'll put you on stage. And we'd book, you know, Sex would do the bookings and Glitter and I would make the shows and we'd sort of run it. And Meredith Williams also was involved and she would document it and she made the website and she was a really um, important member um, because she archived everything. But when I look back at that time and what we created, it was revolutionary. It was, we had people in the audience just take off their clothes and they'd had a mastectomy or something and they'd never shown anybody that. The people on stage who'd never felt comfortable with their bodies getting up there, like, it didn't, it didn't matter what you looked like. It was about what you wanted to say or, you know, people getting up in their pajamas and slippers and going, well, this is me at home. I'm going to do a show about being me at home. And people doing Mad Max style stuff, just like so diverse and so out there. And then to make sure that we had that level of that quality control or whatever you'd want to call it, we made sure we had professionals in there. We'd get girls, I'd get girls from the stripping circuit who were that full stripper, 90s stripper with the, the tits and the tan and the hair and we put them on and then we put Elizabeth on and then we'd have Sex and Glitter and I would would try and bring, uh, you know, keep the quality high and then we'd have a Zaria universe or, you know, whoever we could get on there. We always made space for, for people and then we started to want to branch out to involve trans um, and by the end of their journey together, Sex and Glitter had really made it into this absolute powerhouse of other thing and it was um, taken for granted. Do you, do you think it would work today? Would it work now? I would like to think so but now we have a huge fear of cancel culture and so a lot of what happened in Girlesque couldn't happen ever again at this, at this current moment in time. I wouldn't be surprised if the next generation flips the whole thing. Talk about your Bent Burlesque series. I choose with Bent Burlesque when I started creating it in 2011 it's because I felt the Australian voice in burlesque was being dominated by this American idea of burlesque. Because our burlesque is, as I said, satire, parody. It's, it's great fun, but also I mean, it gets that maybe from the British where burlesque began. But when Australians do it, because our drag has always been so visual and fabulous, 
is quite over the top visually. So I didn't want that to suffer and I didn't want that to die as, you know, because a lot of the new wave of burlesque is from 2000 onwards since, since burlesque, since I left burlesque, I have noticed increasingly as people have come to burlesque, they want to do that, a very American ideal of the corset and the bling bling and the nails and the, the panel skirt. And I, I appreciate there's room for that, but I like our style. I like what we created with Galesque and being a pioneer of that style and a seminal artist, I always will try and create space for it to exist. And so since 2011, whenever I have the energy or the support from the venue or um, support from the, the usually queer festivals, LGBTQAI festivals, I go for it, especially if I see something happening that I go, oh, and what happened this time is with the lockdowns, we got locked out of New South Wales and ended up in Western Australia. And over there, their scene's really healthy because they haven't had the lockout laws. They haven't had this claw that's dragged itself through our culture in Sydney. And it was very alive and very alternative, very really fun. And there were three or four artists, I just went, wow. If I get an opportunity to present these artists in Sydney, just to try and encourage audiences and other artists that this is okay, you're not gonna get canceled. If we set up from the outset that a lot of what's gonna happen on stage is going to be alternative. And that's why I use the term fugly. So people who are expecting pretty burlesque are not gonna to come to a show called fugly. They're gonna to come to a show that's, you know, it's going to play on those ideals of beauty and and attack them and take them apart and redefine what beauty is, but also redefine who we are as women on stage. And in keeping that as diverse as possible, uh, you know, we have Sarah Birdgirl, who's differently abled, and Sheba Williams, who I just adore, uh, who's Maori, and um, uh, Ben Palumbo, who's a gay man, who's, uh, you know, my age or older, so trying to keep the, the age diversity healthy as well. And Aaron Manhattan, of course, is helping me on the mic, and he's an, he's outrageous. So I think it's going to I know it's going to be a really exciting night. But my artists from WA are Lucy Lovegun, Kitty Latour, and then from Victoria, I have Ruby Slippers, and they're my headliners. And their work is like the next breath out. Uh, it's like the next. It's like the children of Golesque. It's the even though they might never have performed at Golesque, I feel like it's it's the Australian style. It's the queer style that. I fight so hard for. And you're performing yeah. in that show as yeah. well. If anybody's ever been to Bent Burlesque before, you'll have seen Dusty Virgin do, you know, play the recorder or um, I take myself apart sometimes and recreate Magritte's rape, the breasts here and a vagina and then eat a sausage. But this Dusty Virgin, yeah, she, she presents with Aaron Manhattan and then I'll be coming back and doing Pink. If anybody went to Monster Gras and saw my pink show where I give birth to an entire outfit and then I might be doing a drag king number later too at Lexi Lee's drag king legends night. Tickets you go online at Pride Amplified or Mosh Ticks, Fugly Bent Burlesque that's the easiest way to find us. It's on my Facebook as well or um, it's The Imaging Kelly or on Instagram The Imaging Kelly again you can look up um, my reels and you'll find it there but definitely Mosh Ticks or Pride Amplified site and they've been super supportive they've been amazing so thank you to Sydney World Pride for being such 
in, an incredibly supportive community event, which I think we needed again. You know, I needed to feel that community push mm -hmm. again, and I've definitely had it this time. Thank you for joining us today and also telling us about your show that's coming up. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me.